Welcome to series three of Life Sci AI, the podcast series hosted by Nick Mahoney, consultant at SciPro. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to series three of Life Sci AI, the podcast series. Thank you to everyone who has listened to series one and series two so far and continuing the theme of, of highlighting really innovative ways that AI is being used in the life science industry across Europe. We're really, really lucky today um, to have uh, the CEO and co-founder of Helix. Now, I'm sure many of you know that Helix are a mission-driven biotech company that are within rare disease and utilizing AI to create novel and effective ways to treat these diseases. And Tim Williams, the CEO and co-founder, alongside um, his role at Helix, he is also the co-founder and trustee of the Cambridge Rare disease network and also has been listed on the sunday times 100 list of entrepreneurs in 2019 and was named as one to watch in the telegraph's top 50 most ambitious business leaders in 2020 and now as a, a guest on the podcast <laughs> so you can see where they might rank um, but real real pleasure to have you on tim and um yeah glad to have you on pleasure to be here thank you for for inviting me today no, it's absolute pleasure, as I said, and I'll give sort of uh, time now for maybe to flesh out a bit about yourself and to, to sort of say, say, say hello. So, um, as you mentioned, my name is Tim. I'm, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Helix, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a bioengineer and, and chemical engineer by training. Moved to uh, Cambridge for a PhD in, in biophysics, so very, very technical uh, background, and then decided to start Helix after meeting my co-founder and more importantly, meet a rare disease parent called Nick Siro. And uh, that was back in 2014. And Nick uh, has two children with ultra rare disease called black bone disease. Wow. And there's, there's only a few uh, hundred patients worldwide. And um, when uh, his kids were born, he was told, told by the medical profession that there were no treatments available and that he should enjoy the, the next couple of years with his kids. And what, what was amazing about Nick is that he, he didn't take no for an answer. He went on a mission to try and find a treatment uh, for his children. And so when we met him in 2014, he was trying to repurpose uh, you know, unusual chemicals, something uh, as part of a weed killer. But but he had understood that uh, there was therapeutic potential there because he was targeting the same enzyme that his children had a rare mutation uh, in. And so this is where, when we got pulled in to this world of, of rare diseases, and there are 7,000 rare diseases, 95% uh, don't have an approved treatment today. So this is a, a massive uh, therapeutic admit need and worldwide, this impacts over 400 million patients. So that's larger than the population size of the United States. And half of those are children. And so at Helix, we're trying to apply machine learning to do this at scale in a different way and uh, in a much more cost-effective way. Yeah, and we're going to go into um, the foundation story in a, in a, in a short while. Um, so I'm excited to hear about that. Um, but in terms of the rare disease piece there, you touched on it and, and um, started to allude to the landscape. So 400 million people worldwide 
have a rare disease. Just explain, I guess, some examples of, of rare diseases. You said your founders, um, children, black bone disease, um, but also maybe as to the challenges that comes with rare disease and drug developments um, and therapeutic developments in, in rare diseases as well. So rare diseases are in fact not very rare. So many people are affected by them and uh, most of them don't have an approved treatment. And, and the reason um, for that is that the traditional drug discovery model is, is basically broken and not geared towards rare disease um, drug development because it costs two to three billion dollars per new drug. There is a 95% failure rate in the drug discovery process and it typically takes 10 to 15 years. And so it's, it's difficult to justify for large pharma companies to work on very small disease populations. And so unless you change the, um, the way drug discovery is done, the, the, the economics of drug discovery, it's a very hard problem to solve. But one where really machine learning and AI can help do this at a different cost basis, different speed, different, different scale. And what's, what's incredibly important in rare disease is to work very closely with the patient groups and communities because they, they really know about the disease. They are the experts. They are your champions who are basically making the impossible possible. And so it's people like Nick who, go, who starts uh, on a mission to try and find a treatment and then manage to bring all the stakeholders together to really make a success out of it. And what, what was incredible is that um, Nick managed to get uh, this particular treatment approved last year by the EMA. So he, he did succeed and, yeah. uh, and, and it's so inspiring and motivating. And so this is why at Helix, we work very closely with the patient communities because they really are um, the experts and, and, uh, and the champions uh, for this. Okay. And I think um, as people that we work with in, in the rare disease space as well, so we, at Cypher, we are acutely aware of the challenges um, within drug discovery, particularly um, that companies can go through, the, the reimbursement challenges, let's say, and, and there not being that, I guess, carrot at the end of it, potentially, um, to, to make it commercially viable all the time in its current state. And I think we're going to go into the difference that Helix are making into, um, I guess, the, the development pipeline and development process to enable it to be more beneficial and efficient um, with your technology in a, in, a, in a short while. But before meeting Nick, were you aware of rare diseases as much as you are now? And, and when did you really, um, I guess, think, right, we can make a difference here. And I know how I can help with my background and coming together with Nick. Yeah, so um, there's, there's a few things that, that happened. Basically, in, in my research group, there was a lot of computational work happening. Um, there was in the chemistry department uh, at Cambridge University. So there was a lot of innovation on, on how you could try and apply uh, AI, machine learning, computational biology to drug discovery. And so there was something I was really uh, passionate about. And then my, my co-founder, Dave, 
uh, he has had many decades of, of drug discovery and incredible success. So he's, he's the co-inventor of Viagra amongst, you know, one of the drugs he invented. He used to be um, global head of drug discovery at Roche. So managing 2000 scientists, very large budgets and an incredible amount of, of um, drug discovery programs. And, and so when we started to talk on, on how machine learning could really be applied to not just make incremental improvements to the current process, but really transform the way drug discovery is done, he got like super excited. And, and then when we met Nick, we just got pulled into this, this new world of rare diseases. I'm fortunate enough not to have a close family members affected by rare disease, but then when really understanding um, their challenge, but also their, their champion, their, their passion, their focus to, to really try and achieve the impossible is, is just so rewarding. And, yeah. uh, and then we met other parents like Nick, who also went on a mission, set up a, a foundation to try and find a treatment. And what they're missing is our people who understand drug discovery or you know, those novel technologies where you can start matching drugs to diseases in a much more effective way. So you, you have more than uh, 4,000 approved treatments today. But if you look at combinations of those, combinations of two or three, you have more than 10 billion possibilities per disease. And so that's a, an incredible therapeutic wealth that's currently untapped. And you need machine learning algorithms to really help you match uh, the existing treatments, those combinations of those to the right rare disease. And so that's really how we, we got started. And we have people in the company who who um, are parents of rare diseases themselves, or in certain cases are affected personally, like uh, them, themselves by a rare disease. And so we're all aligned behind this, this mission uh, where we bring um, you know, leading technology and drug discovery expertise together to, to find rare disease treatments. No, it's, it's so touching to find the common purpose. And I think the, the stat that stood out so far for me is the 400 million. Um, people. Um, so it will not be uncommon for anybody um, in any walk of life, in any company, to either be directly or indirectly affected um, by rare diseases and therefore affected by the work that you are doing um, at Helix. In, in terms of <clears throat> the, the process then and the use of AI, and AI is being used in so many different ways now, um, both in life sciences and outside of life sciences. But I think just doing a, 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 a comparative analysis very quickly, Tim, maybe from what is the, the process for a normal pharma company or a biotech in, in rare disease for drug development, and then the, the situation that you're trying to fix um, with your technology would be so helpful for people to understand actually the powerful work that you're doing. That's, that's um, a really interesting uh, topic and, and, and question. So the current drug discovery paradigm is called uh, target-based drug discovery. So you, and that's based on a very simple principle, which is one disease, one target, one drug. And actually we have 
22,000 genes which get upregulated, downregulated. We have more than 8,000 metabolic reactions. And so the current drug discovery paradigm is way too simple. And if, if you start with the wrong target or the wrong hypothesis, then you're bound to fail in the clinic. And so you, you get to a 95% failure rate because you effectively start with the wrong target-based hypothesis. And this is what we, part of the thing we wanted to change from the beginning. And so we start with something that we call hypothesis-free, allowing us to analyze all the data that there is on a particular rare disease, but without a bias to start with. And then we let the data, the algorithms predict which treatment or treatment combination could be based on that, uh, could work for that particular disease. And then afterwards, you try and work out what the disease mechanism or the drug mechanism is. And so we, we've developed a, a way where we can do this uh, more in parallel. So the current drug discovery approach is very linear. You start with agreeing on what the target is, and then you optimize for a drug, etc. And then you, you develop that towards the clinic and you do the first clinical trial. So we've developed um, a more parallel approach and one that starts without this bias because everyone seems to be working on the same drug targets and then uh, seem to then fail in, in the clinic. And what's exciting is you can really bring, let's say broadly two data buckets together and, and novel approaches. And so one is really around um, knowledge graph technology. And that's the technology that uh, Google uses, for example. So what we've developed is a biomedical knowledge graph focused on rare diseases. And so you can ask questions to your uh, graph and get answers on which potential drugs could work for a particular disease. And, and that's a bit like a, a giant telescope where you look at the universe of drugs and diseases. And this allows you to kind of find new relationships and potential treatment opportunities and zoom into that. And like I mentioned, Google is using that for their search engine is incredibly effective. And so we've built the equivalent for uh, rare diseases. And then the other aspect is really around the new uh, biology that's now emerging. And that's your genome, your transcriptome, your proteome, your metabolome, all of that wasn't really uh, widely available a few years ago. And so now you can generate this new biological information which gives you an enormous uh, insight around the disease biology and potential drug activities. And it's making the most of that and then applying AI to this new biology. And this is really a field that's, that's in fascinating and that will transform human health. You had a, a, a big phase where AI or machine learning was applied to chemistry, which is super important, and we're doing that as well. But the AI and bio, biology, that's really, I think, what's going to transform human health to really understand the complexity of, of human biology in a, in a completely different way. Oh, awesome. So you sort of started, but you start out with creating the knowledge graph. That was sort of your, your first sort of uh, concept, which has come through. And I was reading on your, around your tech, 
around 300 years of worth of reading for literature is embedded into this sort of technology which which you have which i think just shows the amount of I guess knowledge bank that you've you've got in there that you've collated over over the time to enable the sort of i guess the sort of smart partnering i guess is kind of the way that you're looking at it um but then taking it on the the, the new stream of ai that's coming through so the, the new biology piece how how integrated is that so far into what you what you're doing and how much of an impact and a, a, a an impression will it make on your development in the next two three four five years do you think i think it's it's really important to approach let's say a particular disease um, from different angles and so we've developed a suite of different methods and that apply different uh, data types to try and predict novel disease biology and novel potential treatments whether as a monotherapy or combination and this is where most complex diseases will need uh, two or three drugs to help get the patient better that have been really optimized for that and so the, the trick is to really run those analyses and predictions in parallel and try and there as well, not to have a, a strong bias with, oh, knowledge graph is the only method that's that's valuable and that we, we believe in, or the transcriptomic, so that's your gene expression, that's that's the most valuable method. You wanna basically run things in in, in parallel and then let the data tell you and the results tell you what worked and didn't work. And particularly in rare disease, you have a lot of uh, knowledge gaps and data gaps. You, so you, you have to um, navigate this in a, in, a, in a data poor environment. So there's information gaps that you don't know yet about the disease. And then you, we apply AI to try and predict what those knowledge gaps are. And, uh, and we also apply uh, a data-driven approach to ranking the rare diseases that we need to work in because you have 7,000. So how do we select the ones that we're going to predict treatments for? And that's based on predicting or selecting diseases with a high likelihood of success, where we basically um, select diseases where we think we have a good chance of being able to find a treatment and then translating that in the clinic to have a, a patient impact. So in terms of the knowledge gap piece is quite interesting because it was going to go into a train of conversation around sort of risk and, and risk management around, especially around your portfolio as well. And it must be a consideration for you. And you said you're looking at working with ones where you know there's a there's a higher risk, higher chance of, of success. So with a knowledge gap environment in a 95% failure rate um, environment historically. How do you make those decisions? <laughs> They're very hard uh, decisions to make. And, and so you, there's, there's broadly four aspects that we take into account. One is around uh, the disease biology and data. And so we're making the most of what everyone else has already discovered and, and published and shared. And then we look at the quality of that and uh, the data gaps that are potentially still missing. 
And then with the patient group partnerships and other key opinion leaders, we then generate the missing data uh, around the disease biology. The second aspect is really around uh, the models to test your treatments. And, and there as well, some rare diseases don't have appropriate models to, to test your treatment hypothesis. And so we need to take that into account as well. And then we also need to take into account the, the clinical trial uh, setup and what are you going to measure? What do we think the regulators are going to want to see? And there as well, it's incredibly important to work with the patient groups and charities because they understand the disease. They know what, what's needed from, from a potential treatment. They can tell you what should be measured to really measure patient benefits and then help you talk to the regulators to come up with a clinical trial design that makes sense for the patients as well. So it's a true partnership. And then uh, lastly, we also need to look at the economics uh, of that particular uh, disease and, and, and clinical trial development. And we, we are working in a, in a space where we're incredibly cost-effective because we're making the most of uh, treatments that are already out there and see how we can combine them as a, to find a, a new treatment for rare disease. And, and so this, it's quite a complex uh, process. And yeah. then we try and, and break down the, the likelihood of success at each stage so that we're in a data-driven way, um, trying to understand the risk um, of each, each program. And in a world where 95% fails, you really have to optimize for likelihood of success. Like that's, that's really trying to bring that up uh, as much as possible. Absolutely. And it seems like you've got a, quite a robust process there. And so how long did it take you to create that process of qualifying which ones would um, you would tackle and which ones you wouldn't? So that, that's a never ending work because you can always improve it. And so we started a company in 2014. The first uh, four years were really building the foundations and the technology platform and the key principles. And then after that, it was more about scaling and, and applying the technology across a variety of, of, of diseases. Uh, but that will, will never end and it will continue to improve. And with, with the data uh, growing, the number of predictions that we make that are being tested, we can then, you know, improve the algorithms. And so that will continue uh, to, to improve and, and, and um, so it will never, never stop, I think. No, for sure. It's interesting because I was going to sort of think about, you know, your, well, Helix versus other rare disease biotech pharma companies that are normally centered around one rare disease area um or a, a bit of a wider portfolio perhaps but not as i guess diverse in diversifying their risk um for it so do you feel that not only the work that you're doing is very very helpful um but also that you're shining a light on actually if you can diversify portfolios as much as possible you can bring forward the i guess commercial risk and de-risking what you'll be um, looking at if you when there are failures inevitably when there will be. 
Absolutely. And, and, and this is where it's important to look at drug discovery from a different perspective. So traditional biotechs work on three to five programs and, uh, and don't build a large uh, therapeutic portfolio because they haven't managed to find a way to uh, increase the likelihood of success, um, have better economics, so, so a, a cheaper way of identifying potential treatments and translating them to, to the clinic. And, um, and so what we focused on is really building a, a large de-risked and balanced therapeutic portfolio across different therapeutic areas and rare disease. And we've worked very closely with a, a leading world leading economist at MIT, Professor Andrew Lowe, who is a fascinating person who is applying uh, risk theory and financial modeling to drug discovery to try and you know, build a, a large de-risk portfolio and where you can manage uh, timelines, um, value creation, return on investment, patient impact, and you, you, but you, you have to build uh, a model where you have enough shots on goal to build a, a successful company. And then with the successful drugs that you manage to uh, get to the clinic and, and eventually to market, you can then fund more drug discovery programs and so that's such an important aspect and there as well i think the the financial tools and modeling have now also been uh you know significantly improved and you can can apply them to to treatment development as well okay and if someone's listening to this thinking i have a concept or idea or or in fact a therapeutic area for which they are struggling What's the process? Are you proactively trying to find people or are you assessing the rare diseases sort of on a monthly basis or do people come to, to you? How does the, the sort of the, I guess, the initiation start? It can be both ways. So we have our own internal process of uh, ranking, selecting rare diseases to work on, but it can also be uh, someone externally who approaches us uh, and, and then there's a, a process to go through to convince us to, to work on that particular rare disease. And that we, will include um, understanding of, of, of the disease data that's available, the data gaps, uh, the translational path towards the clinic, the, how, how active and passionate the patient group and communities around the disease, because you know, we believe they're absolutely key. And, uh, and so it can it can happen in, in two ways. Okay, so but it's kind of like a plug. If anyone is listening, <laughs> then speak to Tim. Um, but yourself though, and growing with a scaling company um, as, a, as a founder, how have, how have you found that from inception in, in 2014? It's been a really, exciting journey so we we started in 2014 um and then for the first four years we were basically a, a still a small team trying to build the foundations and validating the technology and and then back in 2018 so we were probably around 15 people then then we raised a uh, 10 million dollars series a followed by a $56 million Series B. And so 
uh, within a year, it then raised $66 million. And so then you really start going on your, your growth journey and you can scale your impact and scale the team and scale the, the number of therapeutic programs. So uh, today we're about uh, 140 people and that's continuing to, to grow. And we, uh, I guess, tri tripled in size over the, over the pandemic. Um, and now we're starting the first uh, clinical trial, phase two. That's, that's going to be to test uh, a drug, drug combination for Fragile X syndrome. Yes. Uh, very exciting. That's the, the first patient will be dosed in a, a number of weeks. So that's an amazing milestone for the company. And we wouldn't have been able to, to do that without our partnering with the patient groups and, and charities for that disease. So it's a... It's been a really amazing journey. I've learned so much and the people who joined the team have been really incredible. Also investors are aligned behind the mission of the company. So yeah, really exciting time and, and journey so far. Yeah, and I think I would advocate anyone to jump on your website and have a look at the, the pipeline that's coming through. Um, for me, I've touched on it. There's just a diversity um of, of what you're working on uh you know neurodevelopment oncology inflammatory liver um clinical areas that are getting close to, to the neurodevelopment one that you'll be going into clinical trials for which is awesome to see um did you ever think you would be a ceo or was this nothing that you just considered before but you fell into <laughs> it perhaps <laughs> uh, no so like I mentioned earlier, I'm a first time founder and, and CEO. My background is, is very technical and uh, no, that wasn't uh, the plan. And, and, uh, but we, we, we had this idea, we wanted to get, get started. And I think the important bit is to, to build a, a good supportive team around you and, and aligning towards a, a shared a mission and, and purpose. And, uh, yeah, it's been it's been a great great journey. I've been really fortunate uh, with how things have gone with with Helix, and uh, now we're continuing to to grow. So that's really we're going to the growth phase now, um, and uh, I've learned so much uh, on on the journey as a first time founder CEO. Yeah, what would you say the biggest learns that you had as a as a founder to scaled during COVID? What were your lessons learned there and what are the major triumphs do you reckon that you had as well? So I think the, um, one of the biggest learnings is, I guess, the importance of uh, internal communication and, and alignment as you, as you grow, but also if you then suddenly move towards a more uh, remote uh, setting, then your communication is even more important. And we have someone exceptional internally our director of internal communication and alignment charlotte who's doing an exceptional job at at uh, communicating with the team and and really break down okay here's our mission and how does this translate into strategic objectives and then on on more quarterly uh objectives and okrs as, as we move uh forward through through the year and that's that's such an important uh, elements and the same around your your culture and values of the company. You want to make sure um, you're very clear on what the company is about, uh, which behavior you want to see and you want to promote, 
and there as well, making sure you have the right uh, person leading on the people side and HR side is so important because we, we are trying to solve a really uh, big uh, and challenging problem here. And so it's really important to be clear around your mission purpose, but also company values. And then everyone can align behind that uh, as you continue to scale. No, I completely agree with you. Um, and it's great to see um, the, the, the amazing support and the amazing people that you have in, in Helix, because it can always be a challenging time when you're, you're, you're scaling. And it's always the, the scaling versus the culture question. Um, and it's something that you know, Cypro part of LHI that we're going through and we have a, a clear, good human ethos and a clear vision that's been put in place in the past sort of six to 12 months and the great people team as well to help us keep the culture um, keep the ethos and the purpose behind what we're doing. Um, but then also making sure that we, we, we scale in the, the way that we need to, to make the impact that we keep wanting to, to do. Um, and partnering and, and working potentially with the people like yourselves and other people that we do across the market is, is really where our purpose comes from. So I'm really excited to see where you go this year. And um, is it a, is it going to be a global scaling job? Or are you going to be looking to, to scale outside of Cambridge as, as well? I don't know what the split is now with your with, with Helix, how heavy you are in Cambridge versus across the globe. I don't know. We, we have a hybrid uh, model. So I would say about half the people are in Cambridge and, and half outside of, of Cambridge, UK, Europe, also uh, US. So we are scaling uh, globally. We have a hub now in uh, London, in Bristol. And, um, and so we're, 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 we're growing in with, with hubs, but people we just want to work with the best people. So if, if, if that person is based in Denmark, then we'll work with that person in Denmark. And then we have uh, quarterly uh, team days where people come together. Um, we hope in person when that's possible, it's been not yeah. always uh, <laughs> possible, but we, we find ways to kind of connect monthly, quarterly. And uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's really important to just work with the best people wherever they are. Yeah, 100%. And um, I guess if anybody is listening to this, who is in a similar sort of, I guess, pre-growth stage than, than what Helix were two, three years ago and wondering how to solve the problems, I'm sure um, Charlotte and your head of people and such will be happy to connect with them and, and help them go through those. Um, but look, Tim, I've, I've taken a lot of your time this morning and I've been an absolute pleasure to, to speak with you. Um, I guess, yeah, it's just going to be phenomenal to see the impact of, of Helix this year. And, Good luck on the clinical trials. Um, I think a lot of people were waiting with, with bated breath and, and wish you every success on, on those. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. It was a pleasure to be here today. No, it's a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to the episode of LifeSite AI, the podcast series. If you would like to go back and listen to any of series three, please do so and the best playlist for you to uh, get that from. If you would like to listen to the rest of series one and series two, please visit cyproglobal.com. Thank you.